Welcome to episode 20 of the podcast. My name is Ryan Waite. It's my job here on the Mindset Project to unpack the secret, the skills of high achievers, industry experts, and the everyday heroes. Now, before we get into the upcoming episode, which is a fantastic one as a side note, I just ask for two small favours. If you haven't already subscribed to my Top 3 Thursday, feel free to do so. Uh, It's non-commercial. I don't sell anything on there. And the people that are attached to that email list uh, find it very beneficial. And you get every episode of the Mindset Project sent directly to your inbox. Just head to my website, Ryan Wait Performance, to do so. And the second small favour is, if you're loving the Mindset Project, I'd love you to pass it on to someone that may not have listened to any of the episodes. I'm trying to keep the guests... Quite diverse, you know, whether it's from the business sector, the sports sector, a male, female, the education area. I'm trying to hit the mark for everyday uh, people just like you out there. So if you're loving the Mindset Project, I'd love for you to let someone else know uh, what it's all about. Now on to today's guest and on to today's episode, which is a great episode, especially for young females trying to balance career and and also a family. So Marcia Devlin is today's guest. Now Marcia is a very successful woman in her own right. She's got a great, she's built a great career and and has a great name for herself within the education, especially the tertiary sector. And what we unpack and what we delve into is is how she's been able to uh, remain a very strong leader as a female throughout that industry and throughout her career, but also juggle the balance between having a family and also growing her career. And, you know, it's not always a straight line. There's some ups, there's some downs. There's obviously some compromise as well. So I was uh, personally interested in, in hearing this story as I'm a father-to-be. We're, we're probably two or three months away from having our first child. So it's always interesting getting inside the mind of, of someone who's been there and done that. So we do talk a little bit about universities, the state of universities early before we move into the, the quite dynamic conversation that is women in leadership, but also balancing a career with family, which is, you know, obviously a, a difficult juggling act, especially for females. So as I said before, I'm trying to hit the mark for a diverse range of people. I'm trying to keep the conversations dynamic and relevant for everyone out there. So without further ado, here is Marcia Devlin. Marcia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you on, Marcia. Now, we've known each other now for probably 12 months, give or take, and I know you've carved out a nice little career for yourself, especially in the tertiary area. Um, can we, if you don't mind, just to give the listeners a bit of an understanding of who you are and what you, re- what you represent, just back over your I suppose your life as to how you got to where you are now (laughs) all right well um how far back do you want to go let's start from where I am now so right now I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor Learning and Quality at Federation University Australia Federation University Australia or FedUni is the regional university in Victoria Um, I look after learning and teaching quality the library student administration um, quality and policy that kind of thing um, and really, I'm responsible for making sure that the students have a good learning experience and a good overall experience uh, in many ways when they come to the university and that the teaching is of the requisite quality. 
So I'm a teacher by training and also a psychologist, um, still registered as a psychologist. And so I'm interested in how um, learning happens for all kinds of people, but also how things can be improved. I'm pretty interested in continuous improvement. So I started off quite junior in the, in the higher education sector uh, and I've worked my way up and I'm now also a professor um, of learning enhancement. So that's where my sort of job is and where my interests are. Lovely. So just on the university, how, how long have you been involved with a university, whether it's you know, Fed Uni or, or others? Uh, six, 26 years. 26 so, years. Yeah. Um, 1991, I got my first job in higher education and yeah. Are you, are you concerned that universities as a whole, are losing their stigma? Um, well, I think universities, and uh, this happening across the world, uh, are becoming less elite, and some people think that means that they're losing their status a bit. Uh, the way I look at it is that in the old days, only a very, very, very small proportion of people were allowed to go to university, so mm. only essentially white middle-class men were allowed in. Uh, and now, across the world, we're moving away from that elite towards a mass access to higher ed and actually towards universal access in, the, you know, in some places, including Fed Uni. Anyone who has the capability to study at uni is welcome to come here and give it a whirl. Um, I think that's a really good move across the globe because it means more people have access to the highest level of education. And you've got a more educated workforce, you've got uh, more highly skilled workers, we're, we're turning into knowledge economies across the world and you need knowledge workers, so a higher level of education is a useful thing. And it also helps with things like citizenship and you know people behaving in the world in the right ways. The more educated people are, I think, the better it is. So I'm not worried about universities, I think they're doing going in the right direction. Yeah, I know we've had some conversations about the continuity of university students and uh, being able to stay within that degree for you know from the start to the finish, so you've had you're putting a lot of time and effort into that. Can yeah. you see? Do you think there's some trends in the world, whether it's you know like I said Australia or, or far reaching, um, as to why that is the case? Why people are jumping from one course to the next and potentially pulling the pin halfway through? Yeah, absolutely. So that sort of movement I talked about before will be gone from elite access to you know universal access means that there's a really broad range of people who go to uni now. So again, once they stopped only letting men in, they let a few women in, um, they only let in people from really the upper classes. Um, and that meant that people who got into uni were really highly educated already, were from families where probably their parents had gone to uni, uh, very high expectations. They were um, supported by their families to go to universities. They didn't need to work or anything like that. And so going in at the beginning and coming out again three or five years later, whatever you, depending on how, what you were studying, was actually quite straightforward. Now, um, when you've got students going to uni, like we do at our uni, who are mature age students, so they've got full-time jobs often and they're studying part-time or sometimes they're studying full-time if they're totally crazy and working full-time. They've got families, um, you know, they've got jobs, they've got responsibilities, they've got mortgages to pay, they've got other things going on in their life besides uni. Um, quite often they will step out of study uh, because you can't not go to work, you have to earn the money to pay the bills and you can't not look after your children, but study is kind of an optional if your life is really complex and you've got lots of competing priorities. So a lot of students will step out of study, uh, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently, because things change. So for example, some mature age students come to uni to um, help them get a promotion 
uh, and they get the promotion anyway. And so they don't need to finish the course for that reason. So um, in the old days, it used to be just school leavers going to uni. And in that case, most people just went through pretty easily because they had family support, they had somewhere to live. They might have had a part-time job, but they didn't actually have to support themselves. But nowadays, it's much more complex for lots of students. So it's harder to stay and study when things get tough. Do you think there's a case out there for actually changing the perception of when you actually go to university? I know... You know, nine out of ten, I don't know the official statistics you make, but nine out of ten people that go to university are either straight out of school or, or those couple of years after school. Now, I know myself, I, I, I was a pretty ordinary university student. A lot of my learning, in fact, I say 99% of my learning come post-university when I delved into uh, some other areas. So, And if I went back to uni tomorrow, my, my attitude, my perceptions would be, would be very, very different. So do you think there's a case out there to actually change the stigma around what age you go to university? Absolutely, and for exactly what the reason you just said. So most mature age people don't know. Mature age, by the way, is it's differently defined, but it's around about 23 or over. Um, so I'm not calling you old, by the way, Ryan. Um, I'm, I'm getting over so the So mature hill. age students don't know that universities will accept them. They think, and a lot of people think, a lot of um, newspaper editors think that um, you know, all uni students are school leavers. So when you see a picture of a university in a newspaper, you never see people who are at mature age um, sitting around the library. You always see young people. So it sort of reinforces that stereotype. But that's because most university, uh, most newspaper editors went to uni when only school leavers went to uni. So the world has really changed, and it's not nine out of ten who are school leavers. Actually, it's less than five out of ten. Is that right? So it is. The majority of students across Australia in higher education are mature age, that is 23 or over. So it's actually just slightly um, over half. Just under half are school leavers. Um, so, what you... so that's a big misperception that's out there. So absolutely we have work to do to tell people, you know, you're welcome. And a lot of people come back to uni to change careers. Mm. They decide they, they want to do something different and they go back and retrain. Um, my, a friend of mine saw somebody recently who used to work in the same industry as them, the travel and tourism industry. And uh, she'd taken a package and left and, and uh, my friend hadn't seen her for a while. He said, what are you up to these days? She said, oh, I'm an ambulance officer. She went back to uni and did a paramedic course for three years and completely changed her career. She said she's never been happier in her life. She's saving people's lives every day. It's much better than sitting in the stuffy office sending people on river cruises, which she never really enjoyed. And she's actually found great meaning and purpose from retraining and doing something completely different. Now, her story is quite common, but, you know, you don't hear about it as much as you probably should. So absolutely there's a case to go out there and help people understand. You can learn right through your life. And, you, you know, we've got people in the system in their 60s and 70s. You yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's absolutely, change. yeah, I think it's absolutely vital. And I was talking to, I, I did a session last night in Ararat, of all places, and, and, and one lady was saying that she's got all this time on her hands because she's now recently retired, but she can't seem to get anything done. Yeah, you know, she, I think she was 62, retired, used to be very yep. disciplined with her time. Now she can't get to the gym, she can't do all those things that are needed because she's lost a bit of purpose and lost that learning. Uh, yeah. in her life so I, I totally agree with that that statement master in the sense that yeah whether you're you know, my age your age or, or, or older you, you never stop learning yep let's uh let's take the attention off uh, universities for a for a second and, and put the lens on on you people that know you know you're very driven you're very goal orientated and, and you're very focused in terms of where you want to go with your career is that something you've learned over time or is that something that was embedded in you and in your personality as a child, or is it something you've grown into? Ah, yeah, good question. Um, my parents are a bit 
amused by me actually because they're not um, uh, they've never kind of pushed me or, or sort of encouraged me in fact I, when I see them or when they ring up or when I get an email they sign off with the same thing every time which is uh, my mum says don't work too hard and my dad says remember it's only work Right. <laughs> um, so they're on a mission to try and kind of get me a bit more balance in my life. So it's absolutely an internal thing and I think it's a personality thing, um, partly. Uh, my mum tells me when I was little I used to take my own nappies off because my parents didn't move quickly enough in that department so I was <laughs> uh, you know, moving them along. Um, so from, from the age of one, um, I've kind of been pretty driven in whatever I wanted to do. I'm pretty impatient. Um, and uh, my husband now says to me, you're not going to be satisfied till you're in charge of everything. And I think, well, yeah, that, that would be good because then I know everything will get done and uh, get done well. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty innate thing. Um, it's funny, people say to me all the time, you're really driven and really goal-oriented. It's not how I think of myself. Um, so every time someone says it, you've just said it there, I think, oh, really? Do you think that? Mm. Um, and then when I think about it, I suppose that's right. But then I just go back to being myself and getting on with what I want done and... You know, I, I like, as I said in the beginning, you know, continuous improvement. I just think um, everyone has the potential to make their life happier and to make life for other people easier and better. And why wouldn't you take that opportunity and, you know, enjoy your life more and help others enjoy their lives more? So, yeah. So, did you go to university straight out of school? I did. Um, I didn't do very well. Uh, struggled uh, with what I later found out was called transition. Right. Uh, so, you know, top of the class all the way through school, uh, went to uni. I didn't know I'd gone to the best university in the country at the time, which was Australian National University. I just was going to the sort of local uni. Yep. Uh, so I was with the best of the best, and I was pretty much at the bottom of the pack. So that was a bit of a shock, or quite a shock. Um, I didn't really understand what anyone was saying. Everyone was using big words and sort of assuming knowledge on my part. Um, my dad had gone to uni but never talked about it, so I just didn't know what to expect. So, yeah, I did go straight to uni and, and studied psychology. So I was always interested in um, people and, you know, as I said, what makes them tick and, you know, what makes them happy and how do they improve their lives and stuff, yeah. Might be why we get along so well, Marcia. Mm-hmm. Uh, why didn't you pursue that? Why didn't you keep pursuing psychology? I know it's still part of your, your day-to-day job, absolutely, but why didn't you pursue that? Yeah, no, well, I did in a way. I um, So I had a degree and a lot of people experience, you know, you have a degree and you, don't, you can't get a job with it. So, you, you know, you're not a qualified psychologist after a bachelor's degree. Um, and I was always interested in education as well. So I did a dip ed um, after traveling around the world, mucking around for a few years, as people do. Uh, and I did the dip ed the year that, um, you know, we're in the state of Victoria. There used to be a premier called Jeff Kennett. And at one point, Jeff Kennett um, closed... Uh, many many schools and sacked thousands of teachers and that was the year I graduated so there were no jobs right in teaching uh, so I got a temporary job in higher education to tide me over until the market changed a bit and I could go back to teaching um, and that was 26 years ago and I never went back to teaching and then while I was working in higher ed I did a, um, a postgrad in psychology which qualified me to be a psychologist and then I did psychologist in training for a couple of years so I got registration uh, but then I did a master's in education, then I did a PhD in both education and psychology. So I'd really then, the academic world had got hold of me and um, I've maintained my interest in my registration in psychology, but I've worked in academia that whole time, so I didn't ever practice as a teacher or as a psychologist. So you brush over your years really quickly and obviously you do, <laughs> you do, that, you do that often, obviously, when you, when you look back, but you know, 12 months is, is a long time in someone's life. Were there times... 
throughout that journey that you you felt like giving up and always have I made the right decision and did you want to just remove yourself from that environment altogether or you're like you said before really driven in terms of where you want to go and what you want to do oh there have been lots of times I mean today was one of the times where I thought I don't want to do this anymore yep. I'm going to resign <laughs> uh, I think that quite often but I'm very dramatic inside my head and then I get over it and move on uh, you know I don't think you ever know really for sure whether you're on the right path I mean I quite often revisit why am I doing what I'm doing my job's pretty tough and it's in a really tough um, funding environment. So I'm always thinking, is there something else I could be doing? I mean, I, I used to work at quite an elite university. I was very, very, very well resourced. And uh, even as a quite junior academic, I had access to a lot of money, a lot of support, research assistance, um, administrative assistance. You know, the money was flowing. I could have done anything I wanted. But I used to lie in bed at night and think, I'm just helping the children of the elite to remain elite. I'm not really helping anyone that you know needs my help um so i started seeking out work in um you know lower ranked universities but universities where when people went to those universities it actually made a difference to their lives you know arriving finally here at fed uni where you know the value add of what we do is so significant and so obvious and you can see it every day um it's a real joy to come to work having said just a minute ago that I felt like resigning earlier, um, you know, <laughs> generally speaking, it's a joy to come to work. But, you know, every job's got its ups and downs. For sure. I feel like I'm eventually have found the right path and the right way. But I'm in my 50s and, you know, I wouldn't have said that in my 20s or my 30s or possibly even in my early 40s. You know, it takes a long time to work out what you're doing when you grow up. Yeah. <laughs> I and think I, I'm finally there. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a never-ending ending journey isn't it and just to sort of backtrack a little bit over that answer you mentioned you know obviously you always come back to why you do what you do and that comes back to you know giving the giving the students an elitist environment to learn does it get to you in a sense that you may not have direct impact over those students you know you obviously when someone looks back at university they're probably going to remember their tutor and their lecturer is not so much someone like you who sits above does that get you a little bit when it comes back to that why uh, not really, because I've worked my way up through all those things. I did lots and lots and lots. I was at, I was at lecturer level for 15 years, so I did lots of teaching. Um, what I got frustrated with was not getting the right resources or the right decisions being made about um, what the lecturers had and how their work was arranged. So it was really good to move into a leadership role where I had more um, control over. I know what lecturers and students need, and I'm now in a position where I can more easily get them what they need. Um, I felt often that bad decisions were being made, so I'm now part of the decision-making and I'm, I'm trying to make that decision-making better so that the people that really matter, that is the students uh, and the coalface staff dealing with them, you know, have the resources and have what they need. I do miss um, direct contact. Um, so I have lots of skip-level meetings where I go down a few levels, you know, not to the people who report to me or the people mm. who report to them, but the people who report to the people who report to me. Right. Um, and talk to them and, and where I can talk to students directly. And a lot of, I employ about um, 150 students as mentors for other students and, uh, you know, they take the phone calls and people ring up with issues and they work in student administration, etc. They're, you know, casual staff, so they ha- can get some work while they're studying. Uh, so they're my staff as well as students, so I have legitimate reason to speak to them. So I always try and get in touch with students wherever I can and, hear firsthand about what's going on, what their issues are, what they're enjoying. You know, I'm on social media and I always try and celebrate their successes and um, even after they graduate. So, no, I don't, um, I don't feel frustrated by that. Um, I kind of think 
it, it's nice to have contact, but I can't do both. I got asked to do a guest lecture last week, and I was so excited and I was so nervous yep. um, that I, I I kind of got a bit breathless when I when I started the lecture. I couldn't breathe properly because I hadn't taught for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It went down quite well, and they enjoyed it, and I got good feedback, whatever. But at the beginning, I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, so I'm better, I'm better behind the scenes, I think, because I don't get nervous about my work now. I just get on and do it. Get on and do it. Now, just on education is a very topical um, theme at present. I suppose it always, it's always been. That and health when it comes to politics is always top of the list. But I think there's been some push and some noise to you know, who, uh, push education down a different path in Australia. Uh one, what's your thoughts on that? And two, are we getting it right? And do we all do we need to change it? Yeah. So <clears throat> currently, there's some proposals from the federal government to uh, cut funding to universities pretty significantly, and also to push the burden of the cost of university study onto students a bit more. So I- I'm not in favour of those um, those moves. Uh, I think we're getting it wrong. Um, I think we're, you know, we're moving into a new economy that's about, you know, out of the mining um, boom and into the sort of more knowledge working. And you, you do need university-educated citizens in, in that new world. And so we really should be investing in universities and helping as many people as possible to get there and to succeed. And this government's not doing that. They're cutting. And I, I don't understand it because um, universities, uh, through international education, um, provide the third biggest export in Australia after, you know, mining and coal so you know why you'd be undermining the investment in universities that actually brings in billions of dollars in international student fees and then of course international students come and live here and uh you know pay rent buy food spend money in the economy it is um it's a bit of a mystery to most people working in universities at the moment so i can understand the need for greater accountability greater efficiencies you know running universities as as businesses so mm. that they're not wasting taxpayers money absolutely on board with that 100 percent um but the cuts that are proposed at the moment are quite severe and will actually undermine the quality of education if they go ahead so that's sort of hard to it's easy to understand from an ideological point of view because there's a coalition government in place but it's a bit hard to understand practically what it is they're trying to achieve with that so I'm not happy, Jan, at the moment. Mm, um, so what, what's the chances yeah. of the world seeing Marsha Devlin in politics over the next five or ten years? <laughs> no, I don't have the diplomacy. Ah, uh, correct. Actually, let's, let's talk about that, Marsha, while we're on it. Uh, <laughs> so just to let everyone know, I, I did a session with Marsha and her team uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, one thing, one bit of feedback that's come back to Marsha is she, she, you're not diplomatic enough. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, well, that's my own assessment of myself. That's and, yeah, a number of people have said it to me over the years, but I, I now understand that they're right. So yeah. just, just, just unpack that diplomacy. Is it something that obviously doesn't come natural to you? Is it something you're working on? Um, so you're cutting out a little bit, Ryan. I didn't quite hear the question. I was just, sorry. I was just saying that uh, is it something that you're working on all the time when it comes to that diplomacy? <laughs> No, it's something that I publicly committed and you were in the room to work on, but I actually haven't started the project yet. I've put it on my to-do list, but that's really a fake bit of action because it doesn't actually achieve anything. Right. Um, I, I've thought a little bit about it when I'm, you know, I, when I exercise, I kind of think about these big things in life and, you know, when I'm doing my, my swimming or my walking, I think about it. But um, it's very hard for me to be diplomatic because I, I don't, I think when I say something, I'm just stating the obvious. 
And it's only when I see people's reactions around a table or, or, you know, I get a phone call from someone more senior um, that I know that I've said the wrong thing. Um, And I also get feedback that often I'll say something and people will thank me afterwards and say, that's what everyone was thinking, but everyone Mm. was too scared to say it. So I've got some work to do in terms of my own, um, you know, I suppose it's self-reflection and thinking a little bit more carefully or trying to predict whether saying something is just going to, you know, name what everybody else can see and everyone's going to think that's great or it's going to be, my goodness, you went too far there, you know, you really sort of spoke truth to power. So... I'm a bit hopeless with diplomacy. I really, I haven't even started. (laughs) Just on that though, do you think you would have been as successful as you are if you had have had, you know, that level of, um, you know, high level of empathy and and, and have a high level of diplomacy? Well, see, that's the dilemma. That's a really good question because I know I would not have got this far if I'd sat in a room like every, or not everyone else, a lot of other people do and, and be polite and not say what needed to be said. So one of the main reasons I have made it to the level I've made it to is because I speak the truth. I think, though, what I have to learn, and I have, I have got better, is a little bit more about the distinction between the message and the mode, you know, the way in which something's delivered. Mm. So, you know, I, I think maybe it's not about diplomacy so much as, well, it's probably the same thing, being too blunt and also timing. I'm very impatient, so I see something and I just want to say something about it. But, you know, if I think about it, I could probably pick a better time to bring something up or bring it up a little bit more gently or, you know. But but the dilemma for me is it's worked for me so far. Mm. Well, and then do you think do you think that we're becoming too precious as a society these days? No, I don't think we're becoming too precious. I think... That's diplomatic. Uh, That's a very diplomatic no, answer. I think, I think you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful about, you know, hurting people, disenfranchising people, um, I'm very big on inclusivity um, and, you know, you've got to be really careful that you give everyone a voice one way or another. Um, so, no, I don't think we're too precious. Um, I'm just, I'm pretty out there in terms of bluntness, so I think I just need to pair it back a bit. All right, and, and just on that, so you grew up and, you know, you, you started to carve a career for, you, for yourself throughout the 80s and the 90s into the 2000s and, you know, the, the essence of, you know, women in leadership probably wasn't as strong as it is now. So how much of a challenge was that? Obviously being quite honest in your views and, and going through a male-dominated environment, how much did that affect, I suppose, your position in terms of um, that particular role you're in, but also how much did it affect the people around you, you becoming a really strong female in an in a, uh, organisation? Yeah, so this is going to sound strange, but it's never occurred to me until about two or three years ago that being a woman was an issue. Mm. It's never entered my mind. I just did not understand what people were talking about. I didn't listen to any of the conversation. Um, I just got on with my life. Um, so I've only recently, really recently, come to understand how much women are held back by gender stereotypes, gender expectations, and particularly unconscious bias. Um, and I'm kind of in shock because when you start looking at it and you start looking at the evidence, it is overwhelming. Um, so I've really moved into that space in a big way uh, to try and make a small contribution to helping people understand their unconscious biases. So women are expected to behave a certain way. Maybe that's why I've got myself in trouble so much. Um, and particularly to be nurturing and to be nice. Um, and assumptions are made all the time 
also other things being equal, that women are not as intelligent or as driven or as ambitious or as good as men. And I just didn't, I just didn't realise that was going on. Mm. And now I read study after study after study after. I'm so tired of reading these studies. I'm just over it. Um, and and the evidence is overwhelming that because men are in most of the positions of power, and and that's a fact. You know, if you look at, for example, in universities, 25% of vice chancellors, the CEO of universities, are women. 75% are men. If you look one level up to the chairs of the boards of universities, uh, 85% are men. And what the, the evidence shows is that when you're making um, recruitment and uh, merit selection uh, choices, men tend to pick men because they feel more comfortable with them and they remind them of themselves and they just understand them better. Um, and there's all these assumptions about women shouldn't be at those levels that are very unconscious. People don't know. If you ask them, they'd say, oh, no, I don't believe that. But I did it myself. I did a test last week called the Harvard IAT Implicit... I can't remember what the A stands for. Association. Mm -hmm. The Harvard Implicit Association Test. And I was really shocked because even I have an implicit bias towards associating women with home and family mm. and men with careers and, and, you know, earning money and being out there in the world. Um, and everyone does because that's the way the world is. Most of the leadership positions are held by men. It's very rare to see a woman right at the top of things. Um, and you go in the corporate world, it's even worse than it is in universities. So I can't remember what your question is because you've got me on my hobby horse, Ryan, and now I can't. No, 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 keep going. I mean, this is what the, the Mindset Project's all about. But I will I will ask you this question is, do you think there's a shift starting to happen? I know the conversations that I have. I, I couldn't care, care if the person's female, black, white, brown, or, or whatever. As long as they've got good values and they're good at what they do, I'm happy to proceed with that person. So do you think there's a, there's a shift in terms of the next generation coming through? Oh, absolutely, and, and the world changes all the time. If you just think back, you know, talking about racism, for example, uh, you know, in, in this country, which is um, belongs to Aboriginal people, you know, they weren't allowed to vote in their own country, you know, in the 1960s. Uh, you know, women had to resign from their jobs when they got married at the end of the last century. So, you know, things change all the time and they improve. It just... Um, it's a slow process sometimes, and I'm just a bit... I'm a bit surprised that in my 50s... Uh, conversations I was having when I was 18 are still being had. <laughs> yeah. You sort of think, oh, things are moving pretty slowly. But the thing is, when you have better inclusion and, and different races represented in leadership and women represented in leadership, um, the white males have to give up their positions of power. And no one, I'm not criticising white males in particular, um, I've, I've given birth to two and I talk to them about this all the time. No one, when they get into a position of power, wants to give that up easily. So, you know, to, to have greater inclusion, kind of some people have to miss out a bit in order to make space for other people. So it's quite a hard shift for, you know, society to make. Um, but it's a work in progress. And yeah, progress is being made. I think things are getting better. It's just a bit slow. Yeah, and th things take time, especially something as big and as embedded yeah. as that. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned something about your, your two boys. Uh, yep. And I know there's, a, there's, there's that decision a lot of females make career or family uh, or can I do both am I capable of doing both obviously you've done both and it sounds like you've yep. done both very well how have you done that well the short answer to that question is I married the right person yep and so if there's any young women listening out there be very very careful who you marry in fact that's my career advice to young women choose choose your partner very well uh, so my partner is absolutely um, 
of the view that it's not even a view, it's just in his DNA, having children is a joint responsibility, mm. running a house is a joint responsibility, cooking is a joint responsibility, shopping, everything. So we are a partnership and we have shared everything. Um, at one stage in our careers, um, mine took a back seat while his went forward and then we switched. Um, so, you know, we've absolutely split things down the middle, not every day on every single thing and, you know, he does more cooking than me and I do more cleaning than he does. Um, but overall, I haven't been left with the burden of childcare. And now our children are 20 and 18. We don't, they don't need childcare. They need other sorts of things. But, you know, our parents are ageing mm. and the questions come up. And women are often in that sandwich, it's called, you know, between the children on one hand and the parents on the other. And women will often find themselves looking after their partner's uh, family, elderly parents. Um, and, you know, why is that? Why is it always assumed? And it happens kind of a bit subtly, like the women take time off to have babies and then you're breastfeeding and then you're, you know, caring for young children. Then you have another baby. And by that stage, that's usually in your late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, um, the other person's career's taken off. So it would be silly financially in lots of other ways for that person to step out and ruin their career and then, you know, the, the woman to go back in and try and start again. So it sort of happens for pragmatic reasons. Um, it's a really, really tough one. Um, but, you know, my short answer is the way I've done it. I've had it really easy because I picked the right person to have the children with. Yeah. We shared it. Fantastic. And I think great advice there for, for, for young people, especially young females. But I'm actually personally intrigued. So we're about to have our first child in a couple of months. Obviously, I'm growing you know, my business, you know, and that takes you know, time and energy and effort. You know, Kirsty's starting to you know, carve a really good... This is my wife, Kirsty's starting to carve a really um, good brand for herself within V-Line. Can you do it both at the same time? So you mentioned that one took the slack, while the one started home, and then you swapped roles. Is, do you think there's a way where you can do both? We're both, yeah, both abso- partners? Absolutely. But it, it, it changes constantly. I, I have a theory that every three months you need a different set of arrangements. I, don't, I haven't really tested that out thoroughly. But, you know, when, when there's certain ages, certain things can happen. And when there are other ages, other things need to happen. Um, so, for example, we didn't really plan for when they're teenagers. And I know that's a long way off for you, Ryan and Kirsty, But when they're teenagers, they actually need as much care, but in different forms than they as they need when they're toddlers. And the reason for that is um, up until they become teenagers, you've pretty got a pretty good um, controls the wrong word, but you know where they are at all times and you know who's looking after them. You drop them off at childcare, you drop them off at school, you pick them up or they go to a neighbour or friend or whatever. Um, but once they become teenagers, they just disappear out into the world and their peer group becomes their you know, moral compass and it's very terrifying. Um, and you don't know where they are and they don't answer their phone and, you know, you say that's no, you don't do that again, no, you're grounded and they just climb out the window. And, I mean, all sorts of stuff happens. It's completely outside your control. So at that period, you actually need somebody who is around. So when that happened to us, my husband um, changed his career and so started his own business and was working from home mm. so that he could be at home when the kids came home from school or from wherever they were randomly um, at various times and you know he could interact with them and sort of wrangle them um, at random times because when they're little you can timetable everything Mm. but when they're bigger you kind of just have to be available Um, you you can do both we found it really hard because we had no family support so we've got no family in Victoria my husband's family is overseas mine are interstate Um, and I, I was always really 
you know, a bit envious of, of friends who had, you know, they'd drop their kids over at their sister's place mm. for a couple of hours and go to the bank and do whatever. We could never do that. We never got a break. We never got... So any time we had childcare, we had to pay for it. And it's really hard to get. And, you know, the kids don't like occasional care because they like to know who's looking after. There's all kinds of challenges. If you have family support... Um, whatever you do, don't move away from it. <laughs> yeah, well, we've made that decision. Leading up to the baby, I mean, they'll all be desperate to help. We'll be fine. You make really good friends as well, and then you can help each other out with your kids and stuff. But um, it, there's, I don't think there's any way to, for both of you to have a really, really demanding career and for the child or the children to be well raised. That's just my personal view. Children take time. The thing that really surprised me, though, I, I got pregnant, planned, you know, etc. I was going to have the baby in the mid-semester break and go back to work, you know, four weeks later. Yeah. Uh, I worked part-time for 10 years, actually, because when the baby was born, I actually wanted to spend time with him mm. and, and raise him, which I hadn't factored in because you don't know what it's like to have a baby until you've had one. Um, so you, I think the main thing is to be flexible and... And I, don't, I hesitate to say this, but I think it's just good advice. Neither of you be too ambitious, at least initially, because it's not what matters. You know, what matters is at the end of your life, you're not going to say, you know, God, I'm really glad I did that podcast. You're going to say, uh, hopefully, I raised some, you know, beautiful human beings who are nice people and making a contribution to the world. That's going to be your legacy, not not what you do for a living so much. So it's it's about balance, I guess. Um it's funny you say that, Marcy, because uh, in the last episode, Steve Monaghetti asked me that question around what does success look like for you, and it was exactly that. You know, we're sitting around home, you know, cursed and I are happy, the kids are happy, you know, they've got the resilience, got the right values, not about the fast cars or the big houses, that, that is success to me. So it ties into that very nicely. Now, as I hear you talk, I'm writing some notes down, Marcia, so, <laughs> so thanks for that. Just to back over what you said before about what you've seen in the, in the corporate world from a... Yeah, from a male point of view, some some chauvinistic uh, dialogue and so forth. What what behaviours and what values have you deliberately embedded within your two boys? Well, that, that women are equal. Um, so, but that's really done not so much as um, you know lectures or um, you know talking to them. It's more what's role modelled in their life. So we had this beautiful experience when our older son Finn was. Um, it's about five or six and you know we used to write things down in a little book that's a really good tip by the way write that one down when when your child learns to talk write down what they say because you'll forget later on and it's just gorgeous anyway finn said uh he'd worked out what he was going to do when he grew up and uh we said oh great well tell us that and he said well monday i'm going to be a train driver he's obsessed with trains and tuesday i'm going to be a computer worker which is what he thought his dad did for a living. It wasn't accurate, but we just let him think that. Right. Uh, Wednesday, I'm going to stay home with the kids. Thursday, uh, you know, and every day of the week he had a different thing, but one of them was staying home with the kids just like that was a normal thing because at that point in our life, we were both working part-time and he saw that I stayed home sometimes and Pete stayed home sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on it went. And then he left two days out. We said, what about the other two days? He said, oh, well, that's when my wife, whatever her name will be, well, that's when she can go to work. So again, you know, it's just like this. So that's a detail for later. I'll work out who my wife is, but she'll, she'll be working and I'll be working and looking after kids and we'll be sharing it. Um, so yeah, women are equal. Um, so that was more that was more role yeah. modelled than actually imparted, that, that behaviour. That was more role modelled through, you know, what you yeah. and your husband did from a decision-making point of view. Yep. Yeah. And, and also they see the way their father, you know, treats me. 
Um, they see the way he speaks about me. They see the, that, you know, sacrifices he makes in order, you know, because it's my turn with the career at the moment. Um, you know, he passes things up because it won't work with family life if he takes a big job in Sydney and I'm working in the country and we live in Melbourne and I'm doing a lot of travel and driving. Um, you know, we talk about that around the dinner table when we come to a decision that that's not going to work. They see all that and they just, that's a normal part of, of uh, conversation. Um, they see that he treats me with respect. Um, you know, they see, so, so yeah, role modeling is a really important thing. It's, uh, that's why choosing the partner is really important. Mm, mm, spot on. Yeah. All right. So coming back to, you know, you and your career and your drive and hunger to improve and learn, what's the next, what's the next three or four years look like for Marsha Devlin? Oh my goodness. All right. So <laughs> we've just got a new uh, CEO, Vice Chancellor. Um, and the next three years is looking pretty busy. Um, mm. She's got a big agenda to um, improve things, which is fantastic. So uh, I'm at a bit of a crossroads. Um, and I'll talk to her about this, so uh, it's going to be public anyway, um, is whether I stay here and join that journey uh, or whether I look for something else and whatever the next stage is. So, again, it comes back to the kids, Ryan, because they're both at uni now. Mm. Um, and I've read all the research about kids leaving home and apparently they're never going to leave home. They'll be there for another 10 years at least. No, so no, uh, smashed avocados. Travelers before we had children. Um you know, and we, and we still travel quite a bit overseas as much as we can. We're, we're about to go again, again for a month, take the kids with us. So, you know, could we go overseas and leave them in the house? Um, and so we move out rather than them moving out. Mm. You know, let them have the uni experience but without all the associated expense and trouble of being in a group house or whatever. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, um, it's kind of crossroads time for me. It's either continue on with this job and the next exciting phase of development here at Fed Uni. And it is really exciting. Or uh, look for what might be next for me in, in another job with a maybe a broader portfolio than I have here or um, a different type of focus. So I don't know. You don't know. Okay. That's, don't uh, know. that's uh, Short answer is don't know. <laughs> you've, you've got a five-year plan though, surely, Marsha. Well, I have and, and there's lots of angles to it. So I want to do an MBA um, and I, I almost – I got into three at the beginning of the year. I just had to choose which one and I got overwhelmed with choice and then the year started and, and uh, I decided to wait and go for the next study period. So I've got to make a decision about that, um, of where to do it and how to do it. And I was all geared up and ready to do it. I was going to do it online and I'll get some credit for the stuff I've done because I've actually taught leadership and management at postgraduate level and I've done a company director's course mm. and I thought I'd get some credit for that. Um, and then someone said, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do it full time at, you know, somewhere else. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm working my way through, you know, because I've got some uh, knowledge gaps in terms of finance and economics and stuff that I want to I want to bridge. Um, so that's that's part of the plan. Just quickly um, on that. Le- yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Marsha. I was going to no, ask no, you fine. just quickly on that leadership uh, space. What's the hardest thing about managing people from your opinion? The hardest thing about managing people, um, what's the hardest thing? I used to find everything hard about it, but I think the more experience you get and the more you know how to work your way through things, you know, the easier it gets. Um, I think the hardest thing is probably having to disappoint them. Um, you know, for every business or company or entity has its uh, limitations in terms of resourcing, and and sometimes you can't do everything. Um, and I still find that really hard 
to I don't I don't find it hard to manage people if they're performing poorly. I, I've kind of got that down pat. Um, I do a lot of proactive work in terms of building people's uh, resilience and self care and leadership skills and you know so my team are pretty well skilled up and supported and so forth. Um, but having to let people down. Um, you know, because of poor decision making somewhere else, mm. or maybe I've made a mistake, or things change and it wasn't expected. I still feel bad about that. So that, that's that's the sort of human element of disappointing people. I find hard for sure, for sure, and and, and very honest answer. So I appreciate that. Just mm. to backtrack over a couple of things, what advice would you give to to young women? who are looking to have a family but also grow their career. Obviously, you mentioned about marrying the right person, but is there two or three strategies that they can put in place to make that transition a bit easier? Hmm, strategies. Okay. Um, I always go straight to the, the mind work first. So I think it's about setting your expectations is really, really important because if you don't... So I thought I'd have a baby. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with the baby, put it in the cupboard or something, go back to work. <laughs> I had really unrealistic expectations. Uh, I also didn't factor in that I might really love the baby and want to spend time with him and raise him. So having um, a mindset that's flexible, that, that you know, um, that things will change, they'll change often, go with the flow, kind of have your big goals, you know, um, set out but you know, be prepared to change them if things change with the baby. So our, our second baby um, what nearly died at birth and, and had to be resuscitated and then was very sick for a number of years. Uh, you, you can't really plan for that, but um, I think I would have found that easier to deal with had I had any clue in my mind that that might happen, and mm. I didn't. Our first baby was perfect and born and, you know, slept through the night from three weeks old, and the second one didn't sleep through the night till he was nearly three years old. So we had terrible sleep deprivation and terrible illnesses and undiagnosed things, awful. Um, so that flexibility of mind and agility of mind to, to you know, um, not be too ambitious about what you can get done is really important. So I feel, I feel nervous saying that because I'm saying to people, don't be too ambitious. But I'm also saying do that in the context of share the load with mm, your partner. For sure. You know, um, they shouldn't be too ambitious either. You know, it's not about earning money, as you said, the fast cars. It's actually about raising little human beings into mm. being good people. And you, there's nothing more important in the world than doing that. It, it is the thing that matters the most. Um, and the job, a job will always be there and a career will always be there. But, you know, you only really get one shot at, at raising a child. So that's that, that mindset, I think, is really important. Other strategies I mentioned before, friends and neighbours. Yeah. When, when old ladies like me come along and say, oh, I'll look after the baby, we actually really mean it. I'd love to get my hands on some babies. I'm at that age now where I just want to be around babies. I'll look after your baby, by the way, right? Oh, I'm just sure I'm pencilling in for Friday you know, and Saturday nights, just, okay? For about, what's that? I'm pencilling in for every Friday and Saturday night for the first two years. Is that all right? Yeah, but you know what? You <laughs> could do that, but you're not wanna, you won't want to go out no, on Saturday night because you'll be so tired, right? But you might want to go out for a coffee on a Saturday afternoon with yeah. your wife and hold her hand and walk down the street and I will have the baby. If someone offers help, take it for goodness sake. Um, you know, I'd say also talk to other people at work about how they've managed it. Um, so, you know, this thing you're doing with me and asking me these questions, I'm a bit far away from it and I, I can't quite remember. It was 20 years ago and it was all a blur because mm. we didn't sleep for three years. Um, but there will be really simple, you know, strategies that you can, you know, I used to wonder why women got their hair cut short 
after they had babies. And I thought, oh, they just lost interest in how they look. No, it takes less time to dry and you don't have any time. So I got all my hair cut off. <laughs> just right. go with the flow with whatever you need to do to, you know, get through the day and, you know, as long as the baby's happy and you're happy, your relationship's good, you know, everything else doesn't matter. Long hair doesn't matter. Um, you know, nice clothes don't matter so much, you know. The baby won't remember what it's wearing. So my sister gave me all her clothes from her kids, and she had a boy and a girl, and the girl stuff is all pink, and I just dressed my boys in it. They don't know, and they don't care, and people would say, what a lovely little girl, and I'd say, yes, she is. She's lovely, you know, and you just move on. So I'll be sure that Kirst is the first person to listen to this episode, Marsha, off the back of that okay. advice, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, and just and just one final question: What advice would you give to young females that are in the corporate world looking to progress, and they're coming up against that that really male and stale old chauvinistic uh, behaviour? That's a really really tough one because what I would really want to say is get out and bring your talents to another industry that would welcome you with open arms, and education would be one of them. On the other hand, you know, if you don't challenge things, they don't change. Um, but challenging that is a really tough gig because you, you are literally and figuratively quite often on your own, so it's not a safe thing to do. Mm. Um, I always say to women of all ages, one of the most important things is to have your support crew, you know, your support crew at work, and they can be men as well as, as women, and your support crew at home um, because they're the, the people that will sustain you when you're up against those kind of behaviours and attitudes that are really, really difficult, really, really entrenched. But if you're not happy in the culture that you're in, you've got two choices. One is to change it and it'll depend what level of power you have, how much success you'll have changing a culture. And the other one is to get out. Mm. Um, and and that, those choices are open to you always. You don't have to work somewhere where your talents are not recognised and appreciated. And there will be somewhere else that will welcome you. And I've made that choice a number of times, even within universities. Some mm. universities are very old-fashioned, and I choose not to work in them. I'm not naming names, so. Yeah. And, and from my point of view, there's nothing worse, whether it's a male or a female, seeing someone who's been in a job for 30 years and they should have got out 28 years ago. You know, yes. yeah, there's nothing worse. I mean, they're stale, they're unhappy, they're just going through the motions. Yep. Sure, there's a better way to live life than that. But, Ryan, there's something wrong with an organisation that allows that to happen. Good point. Very good you know, point. Not, not so much someone staying in a job for 30 years. That's not a problem per se. That's not. Um, it, it's more that they're stale and they don't want to be there and they shouldn't be there. They don't enjoy what they do. Why has an organisation not enabled them to leave and find something that makes them happier or provided development for them or, or different opportunities so they can fit better into a job that suits them. So, you know, that's the organi- That's a reflection of the culture, I think, if that's happening. Um, yeah. 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 No, very, good, very good point. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, if you're not enjoying something, you've got two options. You know, you change it through your actions or you change your attitude. So spot on. Yeah. Just to finish off, Marsha, is there any anything else you want to impart the listeners? Any any words of wisdom um, that you want to finish finish off with? Um, words of wisdom? No, I, I mean I don't feel like I know all the answers. Um, I, I guess you know I kind of had this burden when I was going through my career and raising children of everyone else had it better, mm. and I kind of wasn't doing it right, and you know, um, I, and I think that's. That, that can just make your life less happy than it, it could be. And so I think the parting advice is, you know, I, I could be more senior in a different organisation, for example, but 
I'm not interested in that because the organisation that could have happened in was one that was the culture that I just described before. I would have had to compromise some of my values and principles. And actually being more senior isn't the end game. Mm. It's actually making a difference that's the end game. So I think, you know, that sort of cliche, be true to yourself. What you do has to suit you and your family and that's the most important thing. And that's, um, you know, one leader I had who gave me that advice and I was in a dilemma about whether to leave the organisation and go somewhere else and I felt bad and I hadn't finished some things I'd started. And he said to me, you, you have to do what suits you and your family at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, sometimes people struggle to get ahead and get, you know, a higher job and more money. Um, you know, money's great and you need a certain amount to survive and, you know, not have to worry about it. But beyond that, it doesn't actually bring you happiness. Yep. What brings you happiness is, you know, is meaning and purpose and finding something that, that suits everybody. Um, I mentored a guy once who wanted to be a CEO and, um, you know, his wife wanted to do something, open a restaurant, which just wasn't conducive to him being a CEO and they had, they had twin babies. Um, and, and I tried to, I mean, I, I wasn't, I obviously didn't do my job well with mentoring, but I tried to, to sort of lead him to understand that being a CEO shouldn't come at the cost of his family and his marriage was in trouble and his wife had actually gone to another country to mm. be with her family and taking the babies with them because he wasn't providing the support she needed. And I said, well, you could get the CEO job, uh, but you've lost your wife and children. Is it worth it? And he yeah. said, oh, no, but if I got the CEO job, I'd get them back. And yeah, he just didn't understand yeah. it, that she didn't care about that. She cared about, you know, the fact that she was alone with two babies all day. So, yeah, back to balance, I guess, again, Ryan. Um and, and your balance might be different from someone else's. That's, that's what I was sort of getting to. I think sometimes I was working in my personal life, my professional life, to other people's um, ideas and ideals, and they're never going to work for anyone. You have to have your own and you have to stick to them. Yeah, and I think you probably come back to what you said earlier about that impatience. I mean, if, if you're impatient and also comparing yourself to other people, that can be a very dangerous concoction. And, and now even more so with social media, not only do you have to compare yourself with just your peers and, and, and your family and friends, you've got to compare yourself to you know, everybody else who you choose to follow and, and like on, on, on social media. So you've got to have a filter around that. So there's a couple of episodes that we spoke about in this podcast that delve into that a bit deeper. Um, as well. Yeah. What you spoke so, so I would say to Kirsty, don't follow any of those mummy blogs because they're not real. That the, the mummy blogs, unless they're the ones that actually have the truth in there about the baby throwing up in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. If they're the mummy blogs that are on Instagram where everyone looks perfectly made up and the baby in the mummy's outfits match and they're lying on green grass, it's all a load of rubbish. That's not how having children is. Um, so don't follow those because they just make you feel inadequate. Fortunately, when I was having babies, they weren't around. I don't think the internet had been invented. 20 years ago, only just been invented. Um, th those can be a real trap, you know, those social media things. So I think you've hit, hit a nail on the head there. Um, or start, get her to start her own blog where she tells the truth about what it's like to be home with a baby. Yeah, it's well, fun. yeah, I'll, well, I'll, I think I'll, I'll, I'll cop that, no doubt. I already do. <laughs> um, all right, one last thing, one last thing. What's Marcia Devlin's legacy? What, what legacy do you want to leave behind? Yeah, so, I mean, here at the university, there's a couple of specific ones. One is um, bold learning, so blended online and digital learning. When I came to the University of Ballarat four and a half years ago, nothing was online. Uh, there's now 50 programs online, 1,000 students, online enrolment, online tutoring, online mentoring, online orientation, online everything. So that's pretty cool because a whole lot of people who couldn't get access to the university um, have now got access. 
Um, and also I've put in place a student retention and success um, set of frameworks so that, you know, a lot of things that weren't totally focused on students and now focused on students. But more broadly, I mean, it, you don't have to be that specific. I, I read this application for a scholarship once. It was from a school student that really moved me and it, and it quoted someone. I don't know where the quote's from. You, you might know, Ryan, because you're, you're good with the quotes. Um, that that the, what the student wanted was that at the end of their life, um, their, their, their life, the fact that they had lived had made someone else's life mm. better. I've heard that now. I, I can't think off the top of my head who said yeah. it, but I definitely have I heard that one. I haven't got it quite right, but I, I think that that's, you know, when I have a down day or I feel like I haven't achieved anything, it, it, I think, well, maybe not directly, but indirectly today, something, things I've done have contributed to making someone's life better. Um, and that's a really good legacy because that's where true happiness comes from and that's a good thing if everyone's helping each other, the world becomes a better place. That is a fantastic and profound way uh, to end this conversation. Um, There's one, actually, there's one more question that I want to touch on and it's a bit lighthearted. How often throughout your life have you copped Marsha, Marsha, Marsha? (laughs) Not often enough. I love it. That was my favourite show growing up. Was it? (laughs) Right. I was in love with Marcia Brady for years, yeah. and I love it, so it's fine. Uh, but, awesome. that's, but it's not my name. My name's actually Marcia, but everyone calls me Marcia, but that's okay. Okay. Well, Marcia. <laughs> Marcia, Devon. Uh, it's been an absolute uh, privilege, and it's been a privilege to get to know you over the last 12 to 18 months, and, and I can learn a lot from you, already have, and hopefully that uh, relationship continues. So on behalf of myself and the listeners, thanks for being a part of the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks, Marcia. Cheers. Bye. Bye. The fact that you're listening to this podcast tells me that you're driven. Driven to improve in your business, your team, your health, or your personal life. Why don't you turn that drive into action and contact Ryan Waite today? Ryan brings a straightforward approach to his speaking and coaching to create the best results for you, your team, or your business. He assists in closing the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Ryan is the author of two books, Leadership Within, 20 Ways to Unlock the Leader in You, and Progressive Mindset. He is also the host and producer of this podcast. He is one of the most engaging, refreshing, and thought-provoking speakers out there today. Get in touch with Ryan to see how he can assist you by heading to his website, ryanweightperformance.com. Ryan can also be found on all the relevant social media platforms. We look forward to you listening to the next episode of The Mindset Project. Have a great day.